Hello and welcome to Musings from Ransom's Cave. I am your host, resident mystic, theologian, philosopher, storyteller, and the occasional clown. I am David Ransom Bacchus. Come right on in. The cave is now open. Hello and welcome back to another episode of my religion series on musings from Ransom's Cave. I'm doing a two-parter here. Um, It's called uh, Desperately Seeking Jesus. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to jump in because I laid some necessary foundational framework for this conversation. To recap, uh, most of my early life and most of my dominant experience with Christianity was based on fear and panic and constantly living with the concept of an eternal torture chamber where you feel, you're consciously feeling fire burning you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever without relief. That was always a splinter in my mind. That was always a driving force for everything I said I believed. And I noted that when a person is confronted with severe trauma and severe terror of that nature, they will say anything if they believe that what they're saying and doing will prevent that from happening. We note that... In brutal interrogation and torture methods today, say if you go to Guantanamo Bay or something and they torture you, uh, people will give false confessions. Because they're going to tell you anything that you want to hear to avoid this, uh, this torture. And the same thing goes with Christianity. You have what people call a lot of false Christians out there. And I agree with them. They're fake Christians. And they're fake because they're terrified. They're terrified to actually make a brutally honest statement about what they really believe. They're terrified to admit that they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know the answers. They're just conditioned and socially engineered to say what they're told to say and believe what they're told to believe by the pastor because they're scared of hell. Take hell off of the table. Take it out of the equation and I guarantee you people are going to change what they believe and they're going to have a very intelligent and honest approach to what they believe. I'm going to pick up on this for this week. Uh, I remember last week I said that out of this fear, out of the trauma of an impending hell, out of the trauma of an impending judgment day where I'd get left behind in a rapture, out of that terror, I confessed Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And I swore up and down I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just like they told me to say, there's a lot of Christians I run into online. They say, well, you haven't really studied the Bible or you never really had a personal relationship with Jesus and you you weren't a true believer. Well, yes, that's actually true. I never was a true believer. I was a fake believer because I was scared, because I was terrified. It was a forced fake confession because I didn't want to burn in hell forever and ever and ever. So yes, I will agree with you. I never really knew Jesus. I was a fake believer because I was scared. So that is not a reflection on me. That's not saying I'm a bad person. That's not saying I'm an evil sinner. That is a reflection on your religion and your approach to evangelizing people. The concept of fear encourages dishonesty. And it actually creates a scenario of doublethink if you want to go Orwellian. If you want to go, um, 
you know, if you want to talk about cults and tyranny, it causes doublethink. It causes doublespeak. It causes a disassociation in what we call hypocrisy. The cause of all hypocrisy in the church is fear. You're afraid of punishment. You're afraid of eternal damnation. So you're going to say one thing, swear up and down, and you're even going to convince yourself that you believe it as time goes on, but you're actually going to live in a way that's contradictory to what you say you believe. So I have a life's philosophy that has not failed me once. If you want to know what a person believes, ignore every word that comes out of their mouth and watch their actions. Watch how they behave. And if I were to press a mute button on the world and I couldn't hear a word people said, but I watched exactly how they live and what it is they do, that will tell me everything I need to know about what they believe. I'm going to offer a simple example. Let's assume that I were to tell you that there is a million dollar check in your mailbox right now. If you believed that, you would not be listening to me anymore. You would be running your ass out to grab that check and running down to the bank to cash it. If you really truly believed that. Because your actions will back up what you believe. So, let's apply this to Jesus. A Christian tells me they believe in Jesus. A Christian tells me, well, I follow Jesus. Do you really? It's actually a very easy one. I'm going to ask them about certain teachings like, give to all who ask of you. Anybody who wants to borrow from you, lend to them. Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. They're just lazy, poor people. They just want handouts. They need to get a job. I worked for everything I have for myself. Wait, 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 wait. I thought you followed Jesus because this is what the rabbi Jesus taught. <laughs> what, are you a liberal? Yeah, okay, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> no, I'm not a socialist and I am not... Um... I'm not a leftist, I am a Bibleist, and I think Christians should actually shut the hell up and actually start obeying the Bible they say they believe in, but they don't want to do that. I challenge you. Now, I also hear Christians say, oh no, not me. My church is different. I'm different. I'm special. First of all, it's probably not that much different, but you like to think so. I'm not going to argue with you. I am going to relay to you a very real-life experience that I endured that led me to the conclusions that I've come to now about Christianity. And this is... Oh, but before I start, this is not... What do you call? Um, this is not um, one isolated church, one isolated incident, one anecdotal thing that doesn't really matter. I know a lot of Christians will tell me that. They'll say... Well, that was just one church. You got hurt by that one thing, and that's incidental, and that's anecdotal, and that's not a real thing, and that's not a reflection on my religion. My religion's great. I'm just fine. You're the exception to the rule. Shut the hell up. We're going to sweep you under the carpet. You don't fucking matter. Now, a Christian won't actually use those words, but that's their sentiment. They can't be bothered with all of the little messed up details about their system. They can't be bothered with it. Well, my belief and my faith isn't the problem. It must be you. By the way, that is a trademark of a cult. Anybody who suffers at their hand, anybody who is failed by their system, well, they're the problem, not the system. That person is the problem, not my church. My church is just fine. So, we're going to blame the victim. We're going to blame the needy. We're going to blame the people that need help. Okay, so now I got that out of the way and I knocked down these stupid arguments. Let me get into my real life experience. Which, by the way, I have heard a lot of those pat answers in my life. Which really pissed me off. And that sort of thing. By the way, um, let's assume... Let's assume for the sake of argument that my story is anecdotal. Okay, 
It's anecdotal. It's marginalized. It doesn't really matter. We're still doing this over here. Okay. So what am I supposed to do? Let me give you the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what? I'm just one of those fringe things that the system failed and I don't matter. Okay, I still have to live my life. I still have to take care of me because nobody else is going to fix the problem. I still have to do me. Now, as I grow and as I develop myself and as I develop my life, is that going to make me friendly to your religion? Is that going to make me want to join your Jesus? Is that going to make me want to contribute to your Christian community? No. In fact, it'll probably piss me off and make me hate your Christian community all the more because not only did you marginalize me and sweep me under the carpet, and not only did you blame me for the problem instead of taking a look in the mirror, you decided you didn't want to help me. And so now you have me flipping you off saying, fuck you, your religion's shit, I'm going to do my own thing. By the way, uh, what I'm about to tell you is not just my one single isolated experience. It is the experience of thousands and thousands of people. I hear it all the time. There is a growing number of people who are pissed off at Christianity. And they don't hate you because you follow Jesus. In fact, they hate you because you say you follow Jesus, but you don't actually follow Jesus. It would be one thing if you followed and obeyed your rabbi and actually did what he told you to do. That would be one thing. And they hated you. But they don't hate you because of that. They hate you because you say you follow Jesus, but your life is contrary to what you're actually saying. Again, I understand why. Because they scared you into it. They told you you were going to burn in hell if you didn't give them this confession of faith. So I have compassion on you. Now let's get to it. I married my current wife uh, about 11, 12 years ago now. At the time, we were both missions-minded. We were both Christians. Now, I had a past of abuse with the church. I did. I was abused. I've gone through religious bullshit. You guys can read about it in my book, Lost Sheep and Feral Sheep, available under the pen name Ransom Bacchus on Amazon Books. Lost Sheep and Feral Sheep, Confessions of a Religious Addict, are my autobiographical works and insight and critique of my journey through the church system until about midlife. Anyway, yes, I have an abuse history. I have a history of being abused. I have a history of being traumatized. And I told you some of the shit that I had to endure in the last episode. Now, I am a very open-minded person. I am a very fair-minded individual. And I'm willing to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I'm willing to give people the second chance and the third chance and even a fourth chance. I really am. And my wife was saying, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. There are good churches out there. And, you know, I argued with her for a while and I said, you know what? Okay, maybe I'm just jaded. I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm just jaded. Maybe there's a lot of really good things going on with Christianity. And maybe I just got a bad deal. I'm willing to face that. I'm willing to accept that as being true. Okay, you know what? I'm married to you. I'm moving up from Phoenix, Arizona to Spokane. New life, different world. Let's give your specific church a chance. More than willing to do that. Now, my wife had gone on a uh, missions trip to Africa. By the way, this is all laid out in the book Feral Sheep, if you want to read it. Uh, my wife had gone on a missions trip to Africa right when we met. And she came back and told me about it and said, hey, I want to go. So we decided as a couple, a newly married couple, we moved up um, here to Spokane. And I started going to her church. And, you know, I got some pastoral counseling because, yeah, I did have some past issues. And I wanted to reconcile things with the church. And I actually wanted to get into full-time ministry. I wanted to serve the church. That's right. I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to give it a try once again. And I was talking with this pastor of her church for almost a year. Um, we were trying to figure out a lot of things. I was hashing over a lot of things. And I said, okay, let's talk about missions. Let's talk about a missionary trip to Uganda, Africa. There was an issue. We had leftover student loans from past life that we needed to clear up. 
So you know what? We want to clear up our debt first. We want to raise money. We want to raise money for two things. One, to clear up past debt so we just get out of that so we're free to serve the church. We wanted to serve the church. We wanted to do missions. We need to raise the money to get out of debt and raise the money to fund our mission trip. Very sane, very reasonable. I talked to the pastor about this. He said, yep, you know what? We agree. We're, you know, he was completely open to everything I had to say. So one night I'm sitting there talking to my wife about it. And my wife said, hey, I have an idea. I don't know if this is God telling me. I don't know if this is the Holy Spirit telling me. We're going to send out 500 letters. 500 form letters to every church. We actually counted how many churches were in the Spokane area. 500 churches in a relatively small city. That's actually a lot of churches, by the way. I noted cynically later on that there was a church almost on every single city block out there, yet we have all kinds of meth and crime and drugs and shit going on in our city. You'd think the religion would work. Anyway, that's a little side note. Um, we sent out 500 letters. I, I was talking to the pastor. I said, look, here's what we want to do. We want to send out a mailer to every single church in the area asking for help, raising the money to get us get rid of this student loan debt so we can go full speed into missions and full-time ministry. And we believe that is what God has put on our hearts, and that's what we want to do. The pastor said, yes, you should do that. Let's see what happens. I will pray for you. He gave me my blessing. So we wrote the form letter. We... Uh, told all the churches that we had the endorsement of this particular church because we did talking to the pastor there okay by the way this is the pastor who married us this is the pastor who performed our wedding ceremony really nice old gentleman from canada very easy going great guy i loved him okay so uh we sent out this letter a month goes by nothing Another month goes by, I get a letter from one of the churches. They said, thanks, but no thanks. And then I get a call from another pastor from that church. <laughs> I thought maybe they were going to have an answer to help me. No, 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 no. They actually gave me a verbally dr verbal dressing down. They let me have it. How dare you ask for help? In fact, you know what this pastor told me to do? He told me to send out another letter to every single church retracting what I asked because I had put the church's name on it, even though I did it under the blessing of the senior pastor. How dare you do that? He ripped into me. <laughs> now... I'm a cynical bastard because I've been abused by the church system and I've been mistreated and I've seen the lie of the church system. But I watched my wife break down right then and there as she became disillusioned with her own church that she had loved and gone on missions with before. And I watched her fall apart. And I watched the scales fall from the eyes and she saw the awful truth of what was really going on in her own church. At the end of the day, we saw that the church that we know of is actually a business. And they like money. The idea isn't to give money. The idea isn't to help other people. The idea is to get butts in the pews to keep the money coming in so people can get paid. In fact, the, the pastor that rebuked us and let us have it had told me, that he rejects the idea that pastors shouldn't take a salary, and he liked his salary. They pretty much showed their cards to me. Now, here's where it gets interesting to drive the nail in the coffin. I tried to get a hold of the senior pastor that I was counseling with, and wouldn't you know it, he was retired. He stepped down. Couldn't find him. Nobody knew how to get a hold of him. I tried calling him up on his, at his number. No response. He just fucking disappeared. Ghosted us. Like he never even knew us. So. The following week, my wife went back to that church. And the pastor, 
was preaching a sermon, and the pastor said, he quoted a verse right out of the Bible, where Jesus said, give to all who ask of you. My wife saw the truth for what it is, and she saw what was really going on. They say the words, but their actions are opposite of what they tell you. Now, incident number two. We both left with our tail between our legs, licking our wounds. Okay, I'm going to try another church. Let's go check out some of the other churches in town. And we went to another church. Seemed very good people. Very good, nice Christians. In the meantime, I had another idea going. My wife and I had another great idea of what we could do. I said, well, the church isn't helping young or starting out couples get on their feet and get into missions of full-time ministry. We want to start something. We want to start something and maybe get all the churches networking together to help people financially that want to get into full-time missions, that want to get into ministry, but aren't financially viable. And we came up with all kinds of crazy ideas and stuff. What I did is I actually broke it down into a manifesto going straight from solid biblical teaching. I wasn't twisting scripture. I was laying out the scripture in black and white, plain as day. There was no room to guess. I was arguing for the I was arguing from the Bible why Christians should work together with the weaker brother to help them with debt, to help them with their burdens in life and help them get on their feet so they can be a functional functional viable member of the church. And if anybody wants to dispute me or argue with me on that, I've got lots of Bible verses to shut you down. Because one thing I have learned in my journey is in this Western Christian culture, it is actually a cultural sin to ask for help. It is a sin to ask for financial help. It is a sin to ask for help with debt. You're not allowed to do that. That's a no-no. The Bible doesn't say that, but that is the cultural sin in today's Christian church. And so I wrote an entire detailed, in-depth manifesto blowing that up and pointing back to what the Bible actually says. Church number two. Lesson learned, you don't ask for help. So church number two, I said, look, I am not established yet. I need to get on my feet. I need to get working. My desire is to serve in full-time ministry and work for the church. That's what I want to do. I think I wanted to like be a youth pastor or something like that and... Um, I was an author at the time, and I was trying different ideas with the pastor at this church. I said, you know what? I'm an author. I would like help getting my book out there. I would like help marketing my book so I can make money, and then we can all work together as a church, work on missions, and whatever it is we want to do. And I actually told him my idea of what we wanted to do to help other Christians get into full-time ministry so we could ease their debt, ease their financial difficulties, and just work together as a church. So I laid it out there. I accepted the fact that nobody was going to give me a handout, nobody was going to help me, that I had to work. Okay, I'll play by your rules. It's your sandbox. Okay, I want you to help me sell books. Uh, we don't do that. Okay, just keep in mind, I remember visiting a church not too long before where a famous Christian author was able to use that to sell his new book. I think his name was Ted Decker. I really liked him as an author at the time. So I had to go listen to him speak. And churches regularly do help Christian authors promote their books and all that good stuff. He looked at me and said, we don't, have, we don't do that. And then he, he dismissed me. I want to point out something. These churches, not only do you not want to give me financial help, when I ask you nicely for it, because I had a plan, I had a vision for ministry, I had a vision for all good, great, and wonderful things. But you don't want to help me do that. Not only that, you don't want me to be successful. You don't want to help me be successful financially as an author when all I want to do is serve the church. You're not going to help me in any way, shape, or form. 
You hypocrites! You fucking hypocrites! Do not tell me that you follow Jesus. Shut the fuck up. Shut down your church building. I've got nothing for you. So, he gave me a lot of runaround, and he gave me a lot of crap about it. And he was nicer about it, but he was just kind of, eh, and blew me off. Here's the clincher. I was going to his small group at a time, and they called it the 242 group. No, not Front 242, if you industrial heads are getting excited. No, it was Acts 242. And they called it Acts 242 because the whole entire group was based around that premise. Look it up. The believers had everything in common. They worked together as a, as a church. They gave to all who had need, and they just did the Christian life. And that's what the entire group series was about. Living like the Acts chapter 2 church. All of the words were there. The words were great. They said all the right words. And I was saying yes and amen and praise the Lord. These people get it. That's how you follow Jesus. But nobody wanted to help me. Nobody wanted to help me. And again, how dare you ask for help? Go out, get a job, get three jobs if you have to. And get it all yourself. Words don't match the actions. And some of you are sitting there thinking, Oh no, not my church. My church is different. Sorry, your church too. I guarantee you if I sat down with your pastor and had the same conversation that I had with these other churches... They would blow me off, ignore me, and write me off, say, Don't ask for help! Get your own, but we want your money and the offering plate on Sundays. Now you tell me why you got an angry mob flipping off the church, joining the leftist crusade. I want you to tell me why you got so many people pissed off at the church. I can tell you exactly why. It's all laid out in my two books, Lost Sheep and Feral Sheep. Both available under Ransom Bacchus on Amazon. Now, why don't you tell me about following Jesus? I created an image of Jesus as an idol, a figment of my own imagination to follow, because I was scared of hell. I was supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus, or I'd burn forever. Well, you could read the Bible and you could study the Bible, but if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you're going to go to hell. So I had created this idol. And that idol caused me to be delusional. And I lived a life of delusion with my head in the clouds and I did not understand reality. And when I came into sharp, hard contact with the real world, it hurt like a bitch. And for a while, I became an agnostic. For a while, I sat in the void of nihilism. My faith in everything I believed was destroyed. I didn't even know if there was a God. And for a while, I didn't even care. And I was in the deepest, darkest depression of my life. But I finally did pray. And I said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Okay, where is Jesus? I want to go find him so I can follow him. In my journey, I learned a little bit about how a rabbi acts and the process uh, the students of a rabbi go through or the disciples go through. There's actually a vetting process. And this isn't just... Uh, specific to Jesus, this is just rabbi culture. This is just how things worked in the synagogue. Instead of going to public schools, all the kids went to synagogue to learn to read and write Torah. 
That was their job. School education was just very simple. You learned to read and write Torah, and you went home to learn the family trade. At home, your dad taught you how to work. Or you worked in his shop and you learned the trade while you went to synagogue. You know, that's how it used to be. Then, after you had your bar mitzvah at 13 years old, they would question you and they would test you to see how much you knew. The best of the best students that got the best scores and showed that they were studious and eager and had enthusiasm for Torah and the things of God, they were chosen by a rabbi, and the rabbi would say, come and follow me. The rest of you go home. Go home, learn your family trade, live out your life, obey God, follow his precepts, just live good lives, just be good human beings, treat each other well. So they had a vetting process. Now, to follow a rabbi, you gave up all earthly work. You no longer worked for money. That was over. Your primary job was to learn from the rabbi, and you lived with the rabbi. Every day you saw the rabbi. You did everything with the rabbi. You worked to serve others. You ate together. You played together. Everything. Your entire life was immersed and rabbinical teachings, and you had a family relationship with that rabbi. That is exactly the way Jesus did things, because Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus turned people away. So you know what? You're not cut out to be my disciple. Go! Live your life. He said to the rich young ruler, go! Enjoy your wealth. Jesus didn't say, you're going to burn in hell if you don't follow me. He never once said that. I know a lot of Christians like to say, well, Jesus preached more about hell than anything else. No, he didn't. Shut up. That's another story. But anyway, no, he, he was perfectly okay with saying, hey, you know what? You're not cut out for it. Go back to the cares of the world. Go back to your homes. Go back to your jobs. You're fine. My disciples, they are eager to follow me. Little side note, Jesus dealt with cronyism in the church. Jesus dealt with corruption in the synagogue and in the temple. And the vetting process was about favoritism and cronyism. And the completely, perfectly good, eligible disciples were rejected and sent back because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they, they, they had their favorites. They played favoritism and they took bribes and that sort of thing. It was corrupt. So the disciples, it's, it's not like they didn't know who Jesus was. And it's not like that they, they were just common work people that didn't know the first thing about the Torah. It is suspected, it is suggested that the disciples should have rightfully been full-time students at the synagogue. They should have rightfully been selected by a rabbi to continue their studies and do spiritual work and then they would become rabbis and you know pharisees and teachers of the law but they were rejected because of cronyism jesus was a known rabbi they knew who he was he wasn't a stranger and he went to the disciples and said you know what you follow me Again, they walked with the rabbi, they talked with him, they lived with him, they broke bread together, their entire lives were immersed, just hanging out with the rabbi. That's what was meant by following Jesus. You literally lived, ate, slept, everything with him. So let me ask you if you want me to follow Jesus, where is he? I want to go find him so I can be a disciple of this rabbi, as I described I promise you, you don't follow Jesus either. Now, you look at the Bible, you have snapshots of a 33-year-old, a 33-year life of this rabbi. Small snapshots. Consider the gospel story to be like a scrapbook. The apostle John said as such. He said, I just wrote a few things about Jesus to give you an idea of who he is and what he did, but there were volumes of books that could fill a library with all the stuff that he didn't said. 
So you're not even dealing with the full person of who Jesus was or is. You're dealing with snapshots. So a lot of people say they follow Jesus and they have no clue what they're talking about. The best they got is I'm going to do what these teachings say. I'm going to try to, and they don't even really do what the teachings say, as I pointed out. What I've found in American Western Christianity is this. Following Jesus means suppressing your sexual urges, reading and studying the Bible all the time, agreeing to a theological treatise about Jesus. You have to have A, B, and C theological statements as your diehard confession of faith, and you have to repeat it exactly as the pastor tells you. Or you're going to burn in hell. Going out to tell everybody to do the same and voting Republican. That's the best I got. That's what I take from me. That's what I take with me from Western evangelical Christianity. Oh, and do good things every now and then. Put your money in the offering plate and maybe help out poor homeless people sometimes. That's it. That's the best I got. Now, let's cut the shit. And let's stop pretending that we're following Jesus. The first thing I'm going to tell you is not everybody has to follow Jesus or God is going to burn them in hell. God chose his disciples. Jesus selected the 12 disciples. He gave them real, tangible power. The question is, why did Jesus give them real, tangible power? Because he had spent years with them teaching them and training them. And their only purpose was to go out with the authority of God and basically build a new kingdom. And you need an immense amount of power of God to endorse that and underwrite that. You need every power available from heaven in order to carry that out. Now, let me ask you something. When was the last time you walked on water? When was the last time you spoke to a dead body and it came up out of the grave? When have you gone to a morgue and started raising bodies? Just curious. When was the last time you walked through a hospital and healed people? Where they no longer had to be out of the hospital? They ripped the IVs out. They got dressed, went singing and dancing down the street. I'm healed, praise the Lord. When was the last time you did that? Just curious. You're not following Jesus. It's okay to not follow Jesus. I'm not going to say it's impossible to follow Jesus, but I'm going to tell you it's okay not to follow Jesus. God is not going to punish you for that. Go live your life. Work your job. Be a good person. Take care of your family and do what's right. Work in your community and just be a good upstanding citizen where you are. That's okay to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Back, let's talk about missions again. I recently opened up a dialogue with another pastor. The senior pastor who's now retired or semi-retired of this second church that I told you about. After many years, I after I dealt with my own problems and the trauma and all the shit that I went through so I could think rightly about what I'm doing, I decided to re-engage with this church recently, and I decided to have a real honest dialogue with this pastor that will span many months. He preaches about missions. He loves world missions. I thought that would be a great place to pick up right where I left off. Missions. One thing I learned in all of this is a change of focus. I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to go to Uganda. And I'm quite sure I'd be a great missionary out there in Uganda. And I'm sure they would love me. But one thing that God showed me in all of that is America needs missionaries. America's church is dying. Right here at home, we're falling apart. Right here at home, 
We're dealing with corruption. We're dealing with the love of money. They worship another god. His name is Mammon, but they call him Jesus. Am I condemning money? Of course not. I'm a capitalist. I want to be wealthy. If it were up to me, I would be wealthy. I just have no idea how to build wealth, and I have no idea how to market or anything. And I need a lot of help figuring that out. But like I said, you're not allowed to ask for help. No, you're not allowed to ask for anything. Remember that. It's a sin to ask for help for anything. Do it all by yourself. <laughs> Libertarian thought makes great politics, but it's terrible uh, as a practicing religion. <laughs> Somehow, with the Western church has traded the teachings of Jesus or traded even all the teachings in the Bible for libertarianism. Libertarianism is the religion. I'm just saying, they got confused and the wires crossed in their brain, and that's why the church is falling apart. Listen, America's Christianity is dying. We don't need to be sending missionaries out there when our own communities are falling apart. Don't worry about what's going on in Africa or Thailand or some of these other countries when your own backyard is on fire. I noted that on almost every street corner in some places, there are church buildings. In my neighborhood alone, let's just say one square mile, one city block, I can count four different church buildings. Yet here in Spokane, we have a rising homeless problem. We have a rising drug problem. We have rising violent crime. We have a huge domestic violence problem. We have major sex trafficking going on right in our own city. But we have a church on almost every block. In fact, I talk to people. They're starting new churches. I see brand new churches popping up all over the place. New churches. Something is wrong. Because if Christians were actually obeying the Bible, were actually doing what their rabbi told them to do, our city would be looking very different. Now I am going to close with this thought, and this will conclude the two-parter, Desperately Seeking Jesus, and I'm still undecided as to where I want to go next with this next week. I want to close with a relatively famous passage of Scripture, a famous discourse that Jesus had with Simon Peter that is a foundational passage for the Christian church. Jesus said to Peter, the others, who do they say that I am? Peter answered, said, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're this, you're that. And then Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know the rest of that story. And Jesus said, from now on, I'm going to change your name to Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. The question came to me a number of years ago. Same thing. Who do you say that I am? And my response was, and this was my Christian days. My response was, well, you're the Christ. You are God. You're the Son of God. You're my Lord. And then I realized I was just parroting what somebody else said, and it drove the point home even deeper. And that second-minded voice, you can call it the Holy Spirit, you can call it Jesus, whatever, is said to me, no, that is who they told you I am. Who do you say that I am? And I didn't know. 
What I realized is I was writing on somebody else's faith. I was writing on somebody else's religion. I was writing on somebody else's dogma. And I had no clue who Jesus really was. Remember, I was traumatized into a false confession. And I realized that even... It, let's just assume... I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's just say that Jesus is who the Christians say he is. It could be a true statement, but I would be lying to you if I told you that. Because I really didn't know. I was just saying it because I was scared. Because I was traumatized and I was lying through my teeth. And I was a hypocrite. I realized that as fervent and as passionate and zealous of a Christian that I was, I was a hypocrite. I may have been saying the right words, but I didn't believe it, know it, or understand it. I may not know who Jesus is, but I'm not a hypocrite. I'm truthful. I may not have all the correct theological answers about Jesus, but I'm honest. I'm true to myself and I'm honest with myself and I'm honest in my dealings with other people. And in my humble opinion, I think that is what God actually wants, as I said last episode. I'm going to answer the question. Who do I say Jesus is? I, first of all, before I get into this, before I close with this, I'm going to tell you I can be wrong. I'm open to being wrong. Pretty much God himself would have to step down or I would have to have a time machine and I would have to go back in time to see a physical Jesus face to face and ask him questions. Unless I have a physical Jesus standing in front of me that I can talk to face to face. Here is my best answer. This is my answer to the question and I'm going to close with this. To me. Jesus was a third-tier master rabbi. Or the Bible, in the Bible, the word rabboni is used. A rabbi and a rabboni. A rabboni is a master teacher. So when they called him master, they weren't calling him... They were, it wasn't in terms of slave and master. It was the fact that he was a master teacher. And that would probably be, let's say, if we were talking in modern speak... Jesus would have had a PhD in the subject of the Jewish religion. And that means he dealt with a lot of theory and he dealt with a deep mysticism. Uh, some say that he was tied to the Essene sect of Judaism. I don't know. It's on the table. Was Jesus the son of God? Okay, we need to talk about what a son of God means. Jesus was a master rabbi teaching a deeper truth of the existing religion. And I will spend a couple of episodes talking about those. Jesus was a third tier rabbi. No, he wasn't a carpenter. Uh, he was a rabbi. And he was a known rabbi in the synagogue. And he'd been there a long time. That was his life's work. Rabbinical work. And he challenged corruption. That's what he did. I'm going to get more into the Christian dogma of Jesus next week. And we're going to talk uh, deeper about his um, work. What he actually did do. And um, yeah, there's a lot for me to expand on that. There's a whole other world to this. Again, I'm just being honest. I don't think that he is God. I'm going to use a very nuanced description. I'm going to say God is Jesus, but Jesus isn't God. I believe that the Catholic Church took this great rabbi and turned him into an idol to be worshipped. And a lot of the Jewish community will agree with me. Some of the Jewish community has rejected Jesus altogether. They think he's bad. They think he's evil. There are other Jewish sects that under, that kind of think how I do. That Jesus was a rabbi. 
I've talked to Jewish, I've talked to a Jewish counselor and a couple of different rabbis out there. And there's a lot of different schools of thought in Judaism. Classic old school Orthodox Judaism rejects Jesus altogether. Not all Jews do. Right now, I believe he was a rabbi and a mystical rabbi, and he taught the deeper truths of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to get into that more next week. I think the next place I really should go is the mystical church. I'm going to talk a little bit about my findings in search for the truth and what was revealed to me about what the church is actually supposed to be, what it looks like in Jesus's eyes versus what we have today. And I'm going to go after down to the very foundational teachings and the structural framework for the church today versus what Jesus had in mind. And this goes into the more mystical nature of who Jesus actually was. It gets a little weird at this part of the rabbit hole. So find out next week what I have to offer. We'll see ya. The cave is now closed.